0: Good morning! John chapter 1. Church, please take out your Bibles and open those Bibles to page 886 if you are in the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 6 through 8. We're going to dip into verse 15 as well, but we'll be focusing largely on verse 7 of John chapter 1. That will then leave us the climax of this majestic prologue next week. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us for Christmas Sunday. You're welcome. You guys know me fairly well. Many of you do. Uh, If you wouldn't mind indulging me briefly in a little bit of Christmas scrooginess for a moment. Uh, Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Maybe you've noticed all the purple and now pink flags up at St. Sebastian's. Why purple and pink? Those aren't Christmas colors, right? Red and green. Well, purple supposedly represents penance, pink, joy, and it kind of marks the season of waiting and anticipating Christmas. Why didn't we mention the start of Advent two weeks ago? Why no pink and purple? Why don't we celebrate Advent? Well, ultimately, it's pretty simple. First and foremost, it's because we're not Roman Catholic. I said in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago that ultimately the main difference between us as Protestants and between our, uh, and our Catholic friends and neighbors is the question of authority. As Protestants coming out of the Reformations, we hold to the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone. The scriptures and the scriptures alone are our final authority. And then related to that, in the Reformed world, we hold to what is called the regulative principle of worship. So, in the 1689, uh, chapter 22, paragraph 1, it says this The acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him and is limited by his own revealed will. Thus, he may not be worshiped according to human imagination or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. What's the point there? What does that say? We are only free to worship God in the ways that he has specifically prescribed for us in his word. Right? We don't get to decide how we are going to worship the creator God of the universe. He decides that. Right? So that's why we don't have flag waving or, or dancing in, in our church services or, or whatever you want to add to the service. It's, it's really quite beautifully simple. Why no advent? That's because it's not in the Bible. Right? Why no Lent? Because it's not in the Bible. We don't need to create some sort of church calendar to follow to make things feel more holy. In the New Testament, there is one calendar. There is a seven-day calendar. And this probably sounds grinchy. You guys are like, oh, here's the Christmas stuff again. But it's actually great. We celebrate the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ 52 times a year. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we gather as God's people for the purpose of praising and worshiping him for who he is and what he has done. All right, so my preference would be that we'd be a little less excited about two days a year because we think that there's something extra special about them, though they find no basis in Scripture, and a little more excited about 52 days a year because there is something extra special about them, and we are explicitly commanded to keep them. Sunday is our holy day, our holiday, the Lord's day. I'm not going to quibble about trees or presents or lights. They can be fine family traditions. We do some of those things. They're just not not biblical, and that's fine. So sure, Merry Christmas. Let's enjoy the season. But let's understand it better. And then maybe even more importantly, let's leverage it better. I'll take my cue um, from Spurgeon here. I'll only quote Spurgeon at the beginning, and I won't quote him anymore today. Uh, Spurgeon had mixed views on the day Christmas, but he definitely leaned more Grinch. Here's how he, Spurgeon, the greatest preacher who's ever lived, arguably, began his Christmas sermon in 1871. He says, we have no superstitious regard for times and seasons. Certainly, we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all. And secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant whatever for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. And consequently, its observance is a superstition because it is not of divine he it's not in the Bible, so you know, it's not something that we really emphasize or focus on. But he then goes on to preach a Christmas sermon. Why? Because though he wasn't the biggest fan of Christmas, he was happy to take any opportunity to preach Christ crucified. Spurgeon did not love Christmas, but he gladly took the opportunity to witness to his Lord and Savior every single Christmas. And so then, in another Christmas sermon, he says, Come then, church, I will try and argue with you to induce you to do so that I may send you home this Christmas day to be missionaries in the localities to which you belong, to be real preachers. You must then keep this Christmas by telling to your fellow men what God's own Holy Spirit has seen fit to reveal to you about Christ. He says, Keep Christmas... Through witness. Scripture does not prescribe for us this day, but why not take advantage of this day to do what Scripture does prescribe for us? Not just this day, but every single day. What Scripture commands that we be and do witness. John 1, verses 6 through 8. That's our theme. Witness. In verses 1 through 5, we have been talking about the word. Now we've got witness to that word. Three times in these verses, and then a fourth time in verse 15, we've got that same word, witness. And here again, we come to another word that is used almost exclusively by John. We've said that in this prologue, this introduction to the book, John is introducing the main themes that he's going to unpack throughout the book. We've already seen that John is the only one in the whole Bible that calls Jesus the word. We then saw last week in verses 9 through 13 that John is the only one that so emphasizes the world. And now here we're going to see that John 2 is basically the only one that uses the word witness. John in this book is going to use the noun witness 14 times. Matthew never uses it. Mark and Luke only three times. John uses the verb to witness 33 times. Mark never uses it. Matthew and Luke use it only once. So word, world, witness, all classic John. These are Johannine words if you want to sound fancy. We saw last week in verse 10 that the great problem with the world is that it does not know its creator, its savior, its life. The word was coming into the world that he made and the world did not know him and it did not know receive him it rejected him the world is darkness the world we saw last week is evil the nature of the world in john is negative nothing is more revealing about the true nature of this world than its response to the coming of its creator the world does not know the word therefore the world needs a witness to the word and that's john and that's us Main idea today, simply a rewording of verse 7. God sends you as a witness to bear witness about Jesus that others might believe through you. Can I get a witness? Marvin Gaye. Let's start with John as witness. And then we're going to progress towards you and I as witness. Nice and simple. Point number one, God sends John to bear witness about Jesus But this is going to turn out to be such an important theme in this gospel that I want to quickly then trace it through the rest of the book as we see God send witness after witness after witness to to bear witness about Jesus. Why such a focus? Why so much witness in this book and not the others? Well, let us not forget that evangelism is the very purpose of John's gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may Believe. John comes as a witness that all might believe. Do you believe? John, the gospel, is written to give you ample evidence why you should. That's what witness is about, as we'll see. And if you have believed by the grace of God, then point number three God sends you to bear witness about Jesus. Right? Identity is everything. Christian, here is a key aspect of your identity in Christ. You are a witness to Christ. Is there any way that you can honestly say that you are or have been a witness to the light? Have you believed? And has that belief then manifested itself in witness uh, to the one who saved you? Let's read. Second to last time. We're going to read the whole text again. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. Uh, We will be focusing on verses 6 through 8. um, But pay attention to the whole thing. Uh, This is what God wants to say to you today. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray before we begin. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for giving us uh, your scriptures, these things, uh, these words that are living and active, able to make us wise for salvation. Father, you have given us these words so that we may know you and so that we may be saved from the wrath to come. Uh, We thank you for saving uh, us, for many of us in here. We thank you for the grace uh, that has rescued us from that wrath. We thank you for the testimony to that grace we've already heard uh, through our brother Angelo. Um, Father, you have been very good and gracious. Father, you do not only save us, but then you send us. You call us and you commission us for a very specific purpose, and that is so that others may be saved uh, through our witness. Uh, Father, we are all of us probably poor and pitiful witnesses, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would use your word. I pray that you would use the example of, of John the Baptist. I pray that you would use your spirit working through this word uh, to challenge us, but I, most importantly, I pray to motivate us and to encourage us to speak about the one who means uh, so much to us. Father, work now through your word. Father, help me in the preaching of your word. Uh, Please help also in the hearing of your word. Uh, We ask that you would honor and glorify your name and that you would help and edify and encourage your people and draw sinners to Jesus Christ. In this time we pray, in his name, Amen. amen. Point number one, God sends John to bear witness about Jesus. Look at the text. Some people are really bothered by the interruption of John the Baptist into this prologue. All right, this prologue is so beautifully written and is so masterfully constructed that many have tried to argue that it's poetry. And again, it's it's not really poetry, but it clearly has a, a poetic quality to it. Some argue that it must have been some sort of ancient hymn to Jesus, uh, but they don't really know what to do with John. He's sometimes treated as some sort of accident or mistake in this opening. Because look at it, if you were just to remove verses six through eight from the text. Well, the text still flows quite nicely. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming in to the world. So why John? Why is John thrown into the middle of all that? Well, again, it's not that complicated. Just read the text. Because as John is there to serve as a witness. John is perfectly placed and functions exactly as God designed. We have started in the beginning, before even creation, before anything, there was the Word, the Word who was with God, and the Word who was God, the Word who was the creator of the world, the Word who was life and light of the world. But remember, John is building towards verse 14. He's building toward the Word's entrance into the world that he made, and he uses John the Baptist. To get there, John the Baptist serves as a transition and a a segue. We are shifting from the beginning of all things to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that ministry, like in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begins with John's ministry. John the Apostle is showing us how the Son of Eternity became the Jesus of history, and John the Baptist is an important link in that chain. So John the Baptist serves to get us from point A to point B. He serves as a bridge between word and world. The word is first introduced to the world through the witness of John, who bears witness about the light. And John the Baptist serves as a foil, sort of a foil, for Jesus. There's an opportunity here for some some comparison and contrast. We've seen Jesus, the word was God. John is introduced, John was God. A man. We see Jesus, the word was with God. John was sent from God. The word was, John came. The word was light. John was not the light, but witness to the light. John was not Jesus, but John points us to Jesus. Who was this John? Remember, it can get a little confusing. We are reading about John the Baptist in the gospel of John. John the Apostle. John, the author of this book, is never named in this book. So when you read John in the book, the name, it's the Baptist. We're talking about John the Baptist, not John the author of the book. But you should also note that John, this John, is never called the Baptist in this book. He is called John the Baptist in Matthew 3.1, and his role as baptizer is emphasized in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John... It would probably be more accurate to call him not John the Baptist, but John the witness. The name John means Yahweh is gracious or or gift of God. Um, How is this John? A gift. Verse 7, our focus tells us he was sent from God. He came as a witness. Four times in these verses, connected directly to John, we see this word witness. What is a witness? If you're following along in the NASB, you'll see that verse 7 says that John came as a witness to testify about the light. Now, I think the ESV and the King James is a little more accurate. It came as a witness to bear witness because it's the same word. It's the noun and the verb of the same word. But the NASB is helpful in giving us another word that helps us understand witness. To witness is to testify. And when we think testify, we probably first think courtroom. Right? Uh, a basic definition today would be that a witness gives testimony in a court of law. Or a witness gives evidence. A witness is that which gives evidence or proof. Witness establishes truth. That's going to be really, really important. Witness establishes truth. A witness is a declaration or affirmation of reason or evidence to the truth of something. In other words, a witness is a word. A witness is simply a word about something else. And for our purposes today, a witness is a word about the word, Jesus Christ. John was sent by God to bear witness about Jesus, to simply speak words about Jesus. That's a witness. And John serves as the prototypical example of that. Let's look briefly at John. Flip to Luke chapter 1, uh, page 856. Luke chapter 1. It's a very long chapter. We're just going to jump to the end of it. Uh, look at verse 76. Luke 1, 76. Earlier, the angel Gabriel has come to Zechariah. He has told Zechariah that he and his barren wife Elizabeth are going to have a son, that they are to name John. Verse 15 says that John will be great. Verse 16 says that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Zechariah doubts this word from the Lord, and so he is struck dumb because of his doubt until John's birth. But when John is born, he obeys. He declares that the baby's name is to be John, and then his tongue is loosed, and then Zechariah speaks. He prophesies. Look at verse 76. This is Zechariah speaking, speaking to John about John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And I love this part. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. That's why. Because God is merciful and kind and tender. So John is a prophet. And prophets simply speak God's word. The job of a prophet is simply to declare what God has given the prophet to declare. His job is to give knowledge of salvation, and knowledge comes through words. John is to witness to that salvation of a merciful God by speaking God's words. That's it. Flip back to Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 3. There's the beginning of John's life. Let's go to the beginning of John's ministry. Matthew chapter 3, page 808. Here's the beginning of his ministry. Let me read verses 1 through 6. Notice what John does. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so John is clearly a prophet. In his description, and notice, why the, the clothes and the, the locusts and the honey? Why can't his, I think the main emphasis is, he, listen, he's not in Jerusalem. He, he is not one of the religious elites. This is not a, he's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not at the top of things, um, kind of in the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem. He's out in the wilderness. But he comes preaching, and he comes speaking words. Words that in some way prepare the way of the Lord. And what are Those words? It's repent, in Matthew three 2, John came preaching, and the first command of John is repent. If you look over in Matthew chapter four, verse fourteen, Jesus began to preach, and his first command of Jesus is repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is this the first command? Why is this John? Uh, why is this John's primary message in the synoptic gospels? Well, it's simple. It's because of sin. It's because of the sin. That separates. John the witness prepares the way for the Lord, for God himself, um, Jesus Christ, first by calling people back to God. To first turn away from their sin and their self, to change both belief and behavior. John is basically telling the people to leave that which is bad and leads to death and to come back to that which is good and leads to life. Remember, the introduction of John the witness in the Gospel of John comes right after the description of Jesus as light and life in verses 4 and 5. And in the introduction of the darkness as the world that does not overcome or does not even understand the light. Life, uh, Light is life. Darkness is death. John came to bear witness about the light, which means first calling the people out of the darkness, out of darkness. Death, by calling them to repent and turn from their sin, which is death. So one of the first things that we see with John the witness is that he's a witness to Jesus. To be a witness to Jesus, you must first then be a witness to sin. And the good news makes no sense without the bad news. We do not evangelize by telling people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or come to Jesus and he'll give you your best life now. No. John is our model here. When we speak, when we preach, we start with the law. We start with all of our failures to keep God's good law. We start with the fact that none is righteous, no, not one. That we were all of us sinners separated from God. Maybe in part, the church has lost much of its evangelistic effectiveness because we've lost the Bible's emphasis on sin, and the one great need of the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is our real problem? What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God himself. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Ephesians 2.3 says that we are, all of us, by nature, children of wrath. Man's problem is God. Man's problem is that our sin has separated us from the God of life and our sin has offended the God of goodness and holiness. Imagine if you just sinned five times a day. Five times a day. I'm being very generous here. I know you guys. I know you better than that. You sin far more than five times a day. Lust, lies, grumbling, greed, doubt, disbelief, on and on and on. Sins of commission, sins of omission, sin in thought, word, and deed. But just say that you only sin five times a day. Not too bad, honestly. But in a year, that quickly adds up to 1,825 sins. So you live 75 years. That then adds up. And remember, we're being very generous. You sin exponentially more than this. That then adds up to 136,875 sins. Now think of sin as crime. How would you expect a judge to respond to a criminal that comes before him with 136,875 crimes on his record? We'd throw the book at him. We'd expect the maximum punishment under the law. And this absurd number is actually absurdly small in my case and in yours. That is only a fraction of the times that you have sinned against the, and offended the perfectly good and glorious God of the universe. We have a serious sin problem. And as a good judge must punish criminals, a good God must punish sinners. Evil must be paid for. Wrongs must be made right. Any talk about justice must include that. That is what all of us Deserve, And so John comes to bear witness about the light, and he starts by bearing witness first about our darkness. But we've been looking at the synoptics here for the last couple of minutes. Let's go back to John. Flip back to John if you haven't turned there. A witness is a word. Here is a word about the word. We've started with sin. But in John's gospel, what does John say about the word? Well, his first words are actually down in verse 15. Look down at verse 15. Here's the first time John speaks. John the witness. How did John bear witness about him? It tells us. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. Why is that there? What's what's going on here? Oh, well, The Old Testament generally affirms that rank and honor are tied to one's age. Right? John is six months older than Jesus. John's ministry begins before Jesus. Some people think that maybe John the Apostle is writing here because he's writing in response to a group maybe that's growing that follows John the Baptist and not Jesus. Maybe John is trying to combat that a little bit. But both Johns, John and John, want to make it clear that Jesus truly and really was before John because he was in beginning he therefore was superior to John and this is just John himself reiterating verse 8 he was not the light Look down in verse 20 we'll get to this next year he says down in verse 20 I am not the Christ but he did come to bear witness about the Christ and then look at verse 27 there in verse 27 he bears witness to the greatness of of Christ. And keep in mind, this is the John of whom Jesus says in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so the greatest of men, uh, John, uh, Jesus says, John then says that he's not even unworthy to untie the strap of Jesus' dirty sandal. The greatest of men is nothing in comparison to the one who is God. So John the witness bears witness to the greatness of Jesus. And that's what we've seen John the Apostle do as well in these opening verses. How great is this Jesus? He's God. He, he is the beginning. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of everything. He is life and light. He is everything. That The Johns bear witness to that fact. But then it's John the witness in verse 29 that really starts to get to the true greatness of this Jesus in a new light. We've read that those who receive the word are given the right to become children of God in verse 12. We know that it's possible in some way with the word becoming flesh in verse 14. We know that it's all grace from verse 17. But how? How can this be possible? What about the sin that John the witness bears witness about? What about all those 130-some thousand sins that we just talked about? How can we be children of God with all of those sins on our record? Verse 29. He is before me. He is greater than me. Yes, He is Creator, but He is also Savior. John the witness bears a witness not only about our sin problem, but also our sin solution. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, there is the greatness of Jesus on full display. He saves us from the wrath of God by taking away the sin that rightly deserves that wrath and He takes away that sin that rightly deserves that wrath by taking on that sin and then taking on that wrath and dying for it in our place, paying the eternal death debt that we owed for our sin against an eternal God. That's the gospel. The good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save us from our sins and the wrath of God. That's what John is bearing witness about. About the substitutionary, sacrificial lamb that dies in the place of sinners so that sinners can be restored to God. Verse 34, he says, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. God sends John to bear witness about Jesus. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. In chapter 5, Jesus will say that John was a burning and shining lamp in verse 35. And in verse 33, he says that John has borne witness to the truth. And as we talked about on Thursday, truth is that which corresponds with reality or that which conforms to reality. And as we've been seeing, Jesus is reality. He is its creator and sustainer, its beginning and its end, as in its goal or or purpose. And so John is bearing witness to Jesus, is so also then bearing witness to the truth. He is bearing witness to the way things are and to the way things work. You are going to either live in this world in accordance with the way things are and the way things work, or you are going to live in this world in opposition to the way things are and the way things work. And with Jesus at the very center of all things... And Jesus, as the only Savior from our sin and from God's wrath, there is nothing more important than that you see and receive and believe in this Jesus. And so, God sends you a witness. John, the witness, testifying to the truth and the life of Jesus. But that's not all that God does. This is that important. Point number two God then goes on to send other witnesses to bear witness about Jesus. We've seen that this is John the Apostle's word, one of his major themes. We've seen it used in reference so far only to John the witness. But there's so much more. I've had to cut out. I wanted to spend like 30 minutes just running through. I'm going to keep this short. But I want to just run through this real quick and hopefully overwhelm you with the evidence. Because that's what John is doing in this book. This Jesus is too important to leave up to only one witness. And so this book gives you witness after witness after witness. Some argue that it's specifically seven witnesses to go along with the seven signs. Different people run the numbers differently, so I'm not married to this. I'm not convinced that it's definitely seven. There's probably more, but I'm going to give you the seven main ones. We've seen witness number one. Uh, The first witness number one is John the witness. We've already looked at him. Now we're gonna run through some passages real quick. Flip nimble fingers. Look at chapter 8, verse 18. These are all in John. Chapter 8, verse 18. There Jesus says, <clears throat> I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. All right, so there's witness number two and witness number three. The Son and the Father both bear witness. Jesus. Flip to chapter 10, verse 25. We're just going to run through these. In chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. That's number four. The works of Jesus bear witness to Jesus. That's why in the gospel they're never called miracles. They're called signs. Signs exist to point to something else. The signs of Jesus exist to point to his identity. They bear witness about Jesus. I flip to chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. Chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning so there's witness 5 and witness 6. The Holy Spirit, witness 5, and the disciples, witness 6. How will they bear witness? I mean, I've I flipped things around for my own purposes. Go back to chapter 5. I saved this one for last. Chapter 5, verse 39. The order is arbitrary. Chapter 5, verse 39. There Jesus says, You search the Scriptures Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Witness seven. Scripture, or the word, bears witness about Jesus, the word. And Jesus is there talking about the Hebrew scriptures, our our Old Testament. But that, of course, would then apply to the New Testament scriptures as well. Inspired by witness number five, the Holy Spirit. And then written down by witness number six, the disciples. Seven witnesses. You could argue that there's more. You could argue that um, the Samaritan woman is a witness. Some argue that she is. Some argue that there's some other individuals. You could, you could multiply the witnesses. But just because sevens are fun, I'm giving you um, seven. But the question is, is why? Why so many witnesses? Why such an emphasis on witness in John's gospel? Well, again, it's because as we said, witness establishes truthfulness. Witness establishes truthfulness. Do you understand how much of your life, how much of what you know and believe is based solely upon the testimony of others? You know, that's what it means to be human in part. This is how we live and how we operate. Testimony and witness is essential to establishing any claim. This is supposed to be the, the very backbone of our whole legal system. Innocent until proven guilty. right? Proven guilty by evidence, testimony, witness. Right? Witness establishes Truthfulness, And so what John is doing here, John is being ins- insistently obnoxious. He is saying there is good and great evidence for what I am claiming. John is giving you overwhelming and abundant proof of the truth of what he says about this Jesus. And since this is the most important truth, Jesus says in chapter 18, verse 37, that he came to bear witness about the truth. And since in 14.6, Jesus claims that he himself is the truth and the life. In 17.3, he claims that knowing God is life. This then is the truth. And so John piles up witness after witness after witness to say, look, there should be no denying this. The evidence is clear. It is overwhelming. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John tells you, God tells you, Jesus tells you, what Jesus does tells you, the Spirit tells you, we tell you, the Word tells you. Don't be dumb. Don't be a fool. Psalm 14.1 reveals to us the true nature of a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so John is saying, don't do that. Don't be that. Of course there is a God. And Jesus, the Word, the only God at the Father's side, He has made Him known so Verse 7, believe. In first use of another critically important word that John uses exponentially more than anyone else. Believe the truth of that which we witness about. Believe the truth about Jesus, that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And why believe? Why is this so important? We haven't even made it through the end of the whole of verse 7. Look at it again. Look at verse 7. I wish the ESV had translated it a little bit differently. Uh, there's another sneaky grammatical thing that John does here, that John loves. Again, I'm sometimes just trying to impress you. But it's called a hina clause, H-I-N-A. And all that is is a purpose clause, a purpose clause. And John loves these. And there's two of them there in verse 7. Though the English disguises it. You don't see it. I wish that we could see it. A purpose statement, a that or a so that. That's a purpose statement. John uses these all the time. Most literally in the Greek, verse 7 reads, He came as a witness that He might bear witness about the light, that all might believe through Him. John gives us two purpose statements here about the other John. He came, why? That He might bear witness. Here's the explicit purpose for His coming that He might bear witness. Why that all might believe through him, and so here in the beginning, in verse seven, John's ministry is introduced. By Je- Jesus's ministry is introduced by John's ministry, which is explained as having one purpose: that we might believe. And as we've seen at the very end, at Jesus's ministry, John chapter twenty. Verse 31, John the Apostle writes that the whole purpose of his writing and recording of these signs, the whole purpose of John the Apostle's witness is the most famous Hena clause: that we might believe, and that by believing in him we may have life in his name. Church, life is on the line. Uh, Henry put it like this Thursday, I loved it. For us, the study of Scripture is a matter of life and death. I love that. Do you think of that when you drag yourself out of bed in the morning? Like, oh, I've got to read these couple of paragraphs and check off this box. Uh, the study of Scripture for us is a matter of life and death because, we, as we read earlier, Jesus says that it is they that bear witness about Him who is life. And since there is nothing more important than this, God graciously piles up for us the witnesses, the testimonies, the evidences, the reasons. I mean, isn't that so kind and gracious? And generous, God has not left us in the dark. He has not left us to ourselves. Uh, This matters so much that he gives us ample and overwhelming evidence of the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that we may believe and have life in his name. And so the first and obvious application is simply believe. That's the application of the whole book. Have you believed? We will do a detailed study of what true belief is in John's gospel later, probably when we get to chapter 3, verse 16. But we've talked enough about this to know that belief is more than simply belief about. It is more than believing in some historical facts about a man named Jesus. What's interesting is that John uses the verb believe, pistuo, 98 times, far more than anyone. John never once uses the noun pistis belief, of faith. I don't know why that is. I've tried to figure it out, and I've tried to read people, nobody's exactly sure. Why does he use the verb 98 times faith and never uses the noun once? It's a good question. Figure that out for me. Maybe, he's kind of just speculating, maybe it's because John wants to emphasize the dynamic, active nature of faith. And again, it's not just intellectual belief about some collection of facts or about some historical Figure. It is a firm, unshakable trust in a person that then affects and shapes your entire life. Belief in John is a total commitment to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is a total turn away from sin and self and a total turn to and reliance on Jesus Christ. And this faith in John changes everything. Because it is a move from darkness to light. It is a move from death to life, and life always shows itself. Life moves, life breathes, life grows. Have you believed? Have you put your life in Jesus' hands? Have you given up all hope in self and put all hope in him? How can you tell? Again, we're going to look at this in detail in John chapter 3. But the new birth is known by its effects. Uh, Jesus says you can't see the Spirit, but you can see what he does. You can't see the new birth, but you can see what it does. Are You can see its effects. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you growing in your love and affection for Jesus? Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus? Are you pursuing him in any way? Have you seen the, the beauty of holiness and increasingly sought it in obedience? Is your life in any way oriented around him or, or about him? We just have no right to claim that we know him if our life is in no way a reflection of his life. There are a lot of people who think they are saved, but aren't, because they have been taught that faith is little more than believing some facts about Jesus and then praying some prayer. No. Right? New life, new birth is an entirely new life implanted in us, death and then life. Surely we understand that there's a difference between death and life. We can tell the difference between death and life. Uh, Do you have this life? Have you believed in the Christ who reveals the God who is life? And if not, the application is simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And please see or talk with Pastor Mike or, or with me after the service if you have any questions about this or are not sure what I'm talking about here. But our second obvious application is our third and our very brief point. If you have believed by the grace of God and now have this new life in you, then God sends you to bear witness about Jesus. Jesus says to the disciples in chapter twenty twenty one, and right before uh, Thomas's confession of Christ's deity, and right before the purpose statement of the book, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Just as Jesus was sent by God for a specific purpose, so John, the witness, was sent by God for a specific purpose. So the apostles were sent by God for a specific purpose, which means then also, so are you sent by God for a specific purpose. And that's all the word apostle means. Apostle just means one who is sent. And of course, we are not all capital A apostles. None of us are capital A apostles. Uh, we were not with Jesus. We have never seen Jesus. We are not inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture. And so many will try and get off the hook. we will say, look, Jesus is talking to the apostles. They're the sent ones. The commissions are given to them. Uh, even so, I'm sending you. This is only for the apostles. Now, come on. and We don't do this with anything else. That Jesus says, no one takes Jesus's command to the apostles in chapter 13, verse 34, right? A new commandment that I give to you, that you are to love one another and say, "Ah, yep, just for the apostles, no, we don't have to love one another. Some of you wish that was the case, um, but it's not. We all understand that that applies to not just the apostles, but all of us as well. We don't take Jesus's prayer in seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth and think ah, that prayer is only for the apostles. No, I pray that for all of us. Regularly, It's for all of us. And in the very next verse, then, Jesus prays to God, 17, 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Church, Christian, you are sent by God. Now, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. You are sent by God to bear witness about Jesus. We just read it in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us church application bear witness about jesus it's really quite simple there is no way around it in the mysterious providence of god he has chosen to work through men and women like you and me he has chosen that his infinitely valuable good news be spread through the lips of incredibly imperfect instruments like us This is just what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He commands all of us in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, including this, bearing witness about Jesus. It's it's, it's pretty simple talk about jesus it shouldn't be that hard we all of us talk about the things that we love do we love the one who gave gave his life so that we could live everyone except for some of you crazy conspiracy people but everyone else is all excited about this vaccine that has been developed in record time and understandably right people are dying people that we know and love have died Something that helps prevent people from dying is a good thing. So people are excited about it. People are talking about it. It's all over the news. There's a, been a risk of death. Here's this thing that could protect us from physical death and give us physical life. Good news. So we're talking about it. Christopher Ash is an Englishman that I like to read. He's written excellent books on the Psalms and Job. Go read Christopher Ash on the Psalms and Job. He wrote an excellent article last week titled Three Dangers of a Successful Vaccine. Go Google it and read it. It's really good, I think. He says, When the vaccine rolls out, we think we'll be safe again. What dangerous nonsense. I guess so good. What dangerous nonsense. Of course, we won't be safe. We may be safe from one virus but let's not think that we will be safe from God's judgment. What a tragedy if people get this good vaccine and their physical lives are preserved, which is good, for many years, only then to end up in hell and spend an eternal number of years experiencing, experiencing spiritual death. Shouldn't we then be eternally more excited that there is something, or someone that has saved us and that can and will save many others from spiritual and eternal death and give spiritual and eternal life. Yeah, that Someone is Jesus Christ, the light and life of the world, the creator and savior of the world. Shouldn't we be excited about that? Like, shouldn't our whole lives revolve around that? We were dead. We were doomed for an eternity of suffering in hell. But by the grace of God, we have been made alive in and through Christ and given instead an eternity of joy in heaven. That's pretty exciting. That's, That's good news. That's gospel. Do we ever speak it? Do you know and love Jesus Christ? We talk about the things that we love. Do we ever talk? About Jesus Christ? Do you know and love your family and friends? You're about to maybe see a lot of family and friends in the Christmas season. Do you know and love these individuals? Do you believe that everyone who dies apart from Christ is doomed to justly spend an eternity in hell? Have you told them that? God sends you to bear witness about Jesus, God has put you where you are specifically to bear witness about Jesus. You don't have to go to a foreign country. You don't have to stand on a street corner with a megaphone. But you are called to live your life with gospel intentionality. You do have to bear witness and to speak of the one who saved you. We have all of us been given a mission, a great commission, make disciples. And we do so simply by speaking a word about the word Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to it doesn't have to be fancy. It's simply telling people about the one that we love. And I've been convicted about I'm a terrible evangelist. I'm just it's awkward and I hate it and it's uncomfortable and I've been convicted about how little I do it. I'm, 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 I'm speaking to you as the chief of sinners in this area. But I've realized, you know, I can I read all the I've read all the books. I know all the answers. I've got all that figured out. I, the only conclusion that I can really come to is the reason that I don't is pure selfishness and laziness. That's all it is. I want my headphones in. I want to listen to my books. I don't want to have to talk with people. Right? I want to do this thing at the gym without anyone bugging me. I want to go to the grocery store with my headphones on so I can get the things that I want and listen to the book and knock out some pages. And be, It's all about me. The only reason that I don't is sinfulness and selfishness. And as Peter pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the only reason we ultimately don't is because we don't yet truly know God as he is and how good he is and how glorious he is. And so our prayer is that my eyes would be open and that your eyes would be open and that we would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and that we would see his, his glory and his mercy and his kindness to come as the creator of the world then as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world that he made that then rejected him. That gave us life when we deserved death. That gave us eternal joy when we deserved eternal suffering. That's, it's just, that's the most important thing. And I want to live like that's the most important thing. Right? I need your help to live like that's the most important thing. We need each other's help to live like that is the most important thing. And so here's why we're going to look at this book for so long. Because this is an explicitly evangelistic book book it is here so that you may believe and then here is now this other main theme john came as a witness to bear witness about the light and then there's witness after witness after witness after witness that we're going to see culminating in the conclusion um you church are sent by god to bear witness about the light jesus christ who are you going to tell who are you going to talk to application is simple believe and bear witness Let's pray let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your grace we thank you that you are so patient and kind with us your very imperfect people father I pray that your word would do its work on our hearts we thank you that you have sent to us these witnesses thank you that you have sent us both John's in this book you have so uh, faithfully testified and confirmed and give us reason and give us evidence and have have, have proved to us conclusively that jesus is uh, who he said he is that he has done what he has said he would do and so father we can bear witness to that in our lives uh, that have been made new that have been made uh, uh, that have been changed and so we thank you first and foremost for rescuing us for seeking after us uh, for your grace that saves sinners Uh, you weren't waiting for us to do something you did something, you took the initiative, you rescued us and gave us life. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us um, to increasingly live a life that is uh, worthy of that calling, uh, live a life that honors you um, and what you have done uh, for us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would make us witnesses. Father, we all have uh, great sin and great failures um, in this area. I pray that you would give us wisdom about how to do this well, Father, we don't want to be overbearing. We don't want to be obnoxious. Uh, we don't want to um, go about this the wrong way. But, Father, we want to speak. And we want to do so boldly. And we want to do so because we love and because we care and because we truly believe that this is the only hope for sinners. And so I pray that you would convince us of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would convince us of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would um, compel us to speak of him. Uh, Father, we desperately need you Uh, to work on our behalf in this area. And we pray for anyone in here who does not know you. Father, I pray that you would um, show them the darkness of their heart, the darkness of their sin, on the wonderful light of Jesus Christ uh, that saves sinners. Father, I pray that you would draw them to you. Uh, Father, you are so good. Uh, Show us, Lord. Help us to know uh, you uh, as the all-good and all-glorious one and help us to live in light of that wonderful truth. We thank you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.